The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Amplify. We're the show that will help you take your message, whatever it may be, and get it out through social media, networking, and other marketing channels. Maybe even some that you've never thought of. Your hosts are Ken Roshan and Gisela Gonzalez. Whether you're an organization, small or large business, or you just have the next positive message that's sure to go viral, you'll want to stay tuned this hour. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Gisela. Hello, this is Ken Roshan. I'm Gisela Gonzalez. Welcome to... I don't even know. I've lost count. We're up to about seven or eight uh, episodes at this point. We want to actually thank American Dream U, Freedom to Capture Love, Keep Smiling Movement, the networking advocate and Al Granger, and also Swag Dog for being a sponsor of this event. So I talked to Ben Gay about this uh, particular uh, episode that it would be three segments and we were devoting all of it to him. And so what he did was he sent me a bio that will take 18 minutes to read, so that'll take care of segment one. Uh, ben, you're going to be able to hang in there while I read your bio? I'd love it. I love it. <laughs> all right. So as all of you know, we've asked a man to be with us today whose name is Ben Gay III and whose sales training materials, the Closer Series, the Sales Closing Power Books, are synonymous with professional selling. So let me tell you about Ben Gay III. He has worked continuously as the commission salesperson since he was 14 years old. When he was just 18, Ben was the number one salesperson at Macy's Atlanta, as well as the youngest buyer in Macy's in a 100-year history. He was the number one salesperson in a large organization of manufacturing representatives and in major food brokerage companies and the largest networking company in the world at the time. In a 50-year-old management consulting firm and in yet another international direct sales company. In fact, Ben Gay has been the number one salesperson in every organization he's ever been in. And through his coaching, consulting, books, audio programs, video programs, newsletters, speeches, seminars, Ben Gay has helped train, directly and indirectly, literally millions of professional salespeople around the world. While all, of the, all that would have kept most people busy, he's also authored 12 books on the subject of selling and living successfully, while ghostwriting another dozen or so for other sales trainers, speakers, seminar leaders. In fact, it's been said that if you're really a student of professional selling, you have at least one of Ben Gay's books in your professional, professional library, whether you know it or not. Ben Gay also writes two newsletters, The Closer's Update, and the closers alert, that being called the Voices of Professional Selling. He created and taught the famous People Builders programs to inmates and staffs at the California infamous San Quentin State Prison. He was nicknamed the Attitude Coach for the Apollo 15, 16, and 17 astronauts by Colonel James Irwin, commander of Apollo 15. Then in 1976, he launched the 800 number call center industry by founding the National Communications Center. As you know, that started a business revolution and totally changed the way we all shop and communicate. And Ben Gay was the founder and is the current executive director of the National Association of Professional Salespeople. Ben has shared his knowledge with literally millions of salespeople around the world through his sales training material, live speeches and seminars, and he has countless TV and radio appearances. But he's all ours today. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce to you a living legend in the world of professional selling, 
Mr. Ben Gay III. Now, I noticed, Ben, thank you for coming on our program, by the way. Uh, I noticed you didn't, you didn't have any of uh, the information about uh, the product that uh, is named after you uh, as one of your inventions. Why is that? <laughs> I, I, only, I only use Ben Gay when I need a restaurant reservation. <laughs> then I become Dr. Ben Gay. And when they ask me, are you the Ben Gay? I say, no, I'm Ben Gay Third. You're talking about my grandfather, uh, which, who was named Ben Gay, but he, he wasn't a product either. That's a, Dr. Jean Benjou was a French doctor who created a product called Benjou, B-E-N-G-U-E, but they couldn't get Americans to say it. So in 1960, my last year in high school, they changed it to our spelling, B-E-N-G-A-Y, and my life has never been the same. I'm sure it hasn't. And you've had the, the opportunity to work with some of the most interesting, uh, successful, and inspirational people in, in history. Just since we usually do this the third segment, I just want to kind of tease the audience because I thought for sure when I was finished with your introduction that we'd be going to second segment already. So can you just <laughs> share with the audience? Uh, because your, your bio doesn't tell these amazing people that you've worked with, uh, been friends with. Can you just name a couple of the teaser uh, names so we can go into them later? Sure. Uh, one of the thing, lucky things that happened to me, Ken, uh, was that I joined a company that was just starting to explode when I was just a young kid, and everybody that was anybody in commission selling, direct selling, was affiliated with the company in some way or shortly thereafter became affiliated. So through no fault of my own, <laughs> I was suddenly wandering around making sales calls with Zig Ziglar and uh, J. Douglas Edwards and, and uh, Dr. Maxwell Maltz helped me a lot in the early days. Uh, Ogmandino, the greatest, one of the greatest sales tra trainers of all time, little known, but Fred Herman of Cedartown, Georgia, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, it, I, I, I am a name dropper because I'm proud of the people I knew, but it amazes me in the most casual conversations when somebody mentions somebody, I'm thinking, I know him, or I knew him, as the case may be. A lot of my mentors are gone now because I was a kid. I joined at 22. Zig was already in his uh, mid to late 30s, and others were older than that. Uh, Dr. Napoleon Hill, who was one of my early mentors and dear friends, uh, I'm guessing was 40 years older than I was on the day I met him. So a lot of them have gone on to their just rewards, leaving me sort of the last man standing. That's really cool. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, give a shout-out to CEO Space because I, I, I wouldn't know you if it wasn't for that, that great organization, that invitation that Bernie Dorman uh, made really to both of us. I had, I had come in as more of a member, and, and you were coming as a speaker at that event. And uh, you, you really became one of my favorite people, not just at that particular forum, but I've been to probably six or seven since then. And I, I always hope you're going to come back and speak to the crowd. And um, I can't wait to work more events with you because your your ability to connect with an audience is is your wisdom, your sense of humor, and your ability to just be natural while you feed people just all this, these great nuggets. And that's why I was so excited to give you all three segments. Well, thank you very much. CEO Space is a wonderful organization. Again, small world. I knew Bernie Norman when he was, um, I think we figured out, 15 or 16 years old and used to come visit the Holiday Magic Cosmetic Offices because Mind Dynamics, one of our companies, was based there, and his father was instrumental in helping us get that off the ground.
Alan Dorman. So uh, I go back a long, long way. I, when I saw him at CEO Space with his gray hair and sort of crew cut, I had a tough time relating because the last time I saw him, he was a pimply-faced teenager. Uh, but what a great man he's turned into. Uh, I, I was actually amazed that uh, you're, you've been lifelong, at least acquaintances and friends, and uh, to hear Bernie Dorman say that in his house his dad would have just some of the biggest influencers in the United States uh, as, as guests and how that transformed his life and obviously gave him a vision for CEO Space, but you really had a very similar experience having, having the doors open to you with all those amazing people, right? I did. I was asked the other day, and I think I'm going to start sticking it in seminars, that we were talking about a weekend. There were many weekends like this, but a weekend where I had a big home in Marin County up on a little mountaintop overlooking San Francisco Bay, and one weekend in particular, staying at the house as guests because we were doing something either the week before or the week after was J. Douglas Edwards, the great sales trainer, the father of modern-day selling, Dr. Napoleon Hill of Think and Grow Rich, uh, one of the great brains of our time, and Earl Nightingale, the dean of personal motivation and the great voice out of Chicago, uh, who was the voice of our companies. He did all our narrations and stuff. So anyway, there was J. Douglas Edwards, Dr. Hill, and Earl Nightingale all in the house, and somebody heard me say that, said, my God, what was that like? What do you remember from it? And I, I laughed. I said, well, I remember that none of them could shoot pool. Um, <laughs> And the, the, my point being, we didn't sit around saying profound things to each other, believing we were all going to become legends of one type or other. Uh, we were all busy running companies or trying to make a living or recover from our latest failure or whatever. And we were just guys who had some time off, shot some pool, probably watched some football. And uh, if anybody said anything profound, I didn't write it down. And how old were you at that point? 25-ish, I came to California to run Holiday Magic when I was 25. Okay, so that we do, uh, the, I guess, the history, at least for segment one. Gisela had a question for you. Hello, how are you? I am fine, Gisela, how are you? Great, great, thank you. I'm better now that I heard that at uh, 14 years old, did you have a strategy for a business? I, I, you broke up a little bit. Can somebody repeat it? I heard that at 14 years old, you were, um, you know, business business strategist. strategist. So uh, at 14 years old, did you have a strategy? And if you did, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I was 14, and my father got tired of giving me allow allowance money. I'd already I'd always done little odd jobs. I'd go down to the strip mall, wouldn't call that in those days, but where some little community stores were, and I'd sweep them out without being asked, figuring I'd get a chip at the end, and I always did. And then I became sort of a regular. I was known as the guy in the neighborhood. If you want something done, he'll do it if you pay him. So uh, at 14, my father said, let's get serious about this. Start a lawn mowing business. Well, in Atlanta in the south, there's plenty of lawns to mow. It, you know, it grows about an inch a day in the growing season. And I went out and I did it for a couple of days. And I came back and turned my lawnmower back in. It was just a family lawnmower. I turned it back in. I said, I don't want to do this. I, I was not then, am not bit now big on physical labor, especially in the summer in Atlanta. And uh, he said, well, I didn't think you'd last long. Now let me tell you what my real plan is. He said, you go out and sell the jobs. You hire all your little friends to work for you. 
tell them what you want done and the quality you want done, et cetera, and then you come back in the afternoon, inspect the work, and pick up the payment. And the price you ask is you tell them you don't have a set price. You want them to pay you whatever they think the job is worth. And I said, well, what if they want to pay nothing? He said, well, if you do a good job, that shouldn't be a problem. But uh, uh, so I did, and his theory was right. He had told me that he figured they'd pay me two to three times more than I would ever have the guts to ask for. He said, now you give half of whatever you collect to the person who did the job. So they got paid all they were ever going to get paid. You got paid all you were ever going to get paid, plus some more probably, but you didn't have to do the work. And before that first summer was over, I had at any given time 20, 25 kids and probably an eight-square-block area mowing lawns all over the place. And I was making as much money as some of our adult neighbors were making. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Only. No, it's no. summer only. Uh, and uh, but it set me up for always looking for things like that. I, I can honestly say I've been gainfully employed doing something since I was 14. Would you advise that uh, any 14-year-old today to just go and say, you know, just pay me whatever you think my work is worth in 2015? Would you think that it's the same strategy? Would, if, if you think it's different today, what would you recommend out there? Well, I've recommended it to my kids, and they've done a little bit of it. Uh, the lawn mowing industry, at least in California, has been taken over. Uh, by Mexican-Americans and Asian-Americans and so on. So there's not probably as much opportunity as there used to be. I had zero competition in Atlanta. They either mowed it themselves or they hired a kid to do it, and I provided the kid. But this, the concept is the same. Uh, you know, we have high unemployment among the teenagers. It's whatever, 20% or whatever. Among certain, And then if you count the people who are underemployed or have given up looking, the unemployment rate is not 5%, like the government says. It's closer to 15%. So right. uh, in, in all of that, uh, there are still, every time I meet a business owner, I say, what's your biggest problem? Whether it's a local restaurant here or somebody I meet on the road or whatever, they always say finding good people. People That's true. Who people who are willing to work. So there's really not a shortage of jobs for those who come early, stay late, work on weekends. It's for the people who want to go coast through life, it gets rather difficult. Yeah, we've definitely experienced that uh, with this PR company and all the photographers. In fact, we had a job yesterday for the, uh, I mean, for tomorrow that's at the Howard County Chamber of Commerce. And we had roughly 30 photographers we asked who would like to go out and do this event. And I will tell you, we had to send it out several times just to get a nibble. And uh, I, I look at events like that as the reason our company was built. We did, uh, I did 330 events, Ben, my first year, just to study the statistics and see the behavior and also see the, the social media uh, aspects of whether this is even going to be a good company. But I, I look at every single day as an opportunity to actually do social media. And I, that's a question I was going to ask you later, but how has social media impacted you in doing business at this point? Well, a, a, a great deal. I probably don't do enough of it or effectively enough because I'm not a computer genius to say the least. I send and receive emails. I comment on Facebook, um, send out 
bulletins and so on to my personal list of a few thousand people uh, and use it that way. And it, it, since I only do 24 seminars a year and I can only write so much before I wear out my fingertips, uh, it's kept me certainly busy enough. But for, for just reminding people, this is going to sound sort of primitive in this high-tech society, but for reminding people you're alive and available, it serves purpose. Uh, I give a, I'm famous for one-word comments. I don't write long things when I see something, but, you know, excellent, good, uh, sad, whatever. Because every time I put up a comment like that, my name and face appear. And if you click on it, you can go to my website and find out all sorts of things about me. And I have the benefit of an unusual name. Uh, ben Gay is a name most people don't forget. You know, they all have to make their joke about it and then say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to rub it in. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the uh, uh, keeping my name out there and uh, people aware. Years ago, a dear friend of mine who was, one of, again, one of my mentors, Ray Considine, he lived into his early 90s in, in great health, just finally, boom, died in a 24-hour period from the beginning of the sick, sickness to the end. Looked like a movie star, a uh, wonderful guy. And I was talking to him one day. I said, Ray, where are you going next? He said, well, I'm not really going anywhere. He was in his 80s by then, uh, deep into his 80s. He said, I'm not really going anywhere. He said, everybody that I know has retired or died, and he meant the people who used to hire him to give talks or to consult, whatever, they've all retired or died. And I didn't say anything to him at the time because I respected him too much to criticize him, but I thought, boy, I'm never going to let that happen to me. Um, Gigi and I were running numbers on a scrap of paper in a restaurant the other day and figured out our average, the average age of our friends, you know, not kids in the neighborhood, but friends goes down to about 21 and goes up to 95, but the average age was in the mid-30s. So I've tried to stay active and involved with people who, who aren't going to croak tomorrow morning. In addition to my old friends, uh, and the, the uh, social media has done a world of good there. I, I suspect I would have an entirely different life if there wasn't some way short of printing things, putting them in an envelope and mailing them, if there weren't some other way to tell people that Ben Gay is still alive, kicking, does 24 seminars a year, ghostwrites books, can write your sales scripts for you, and so on. But they don't think of all that if they don't see your name occasionally. Well, you do a great job on social media. Uh, you definitely show up on my feet a lot. And uh, i got to say, you're a pretty funny guy, Ben. I, re I enjoy your humor. I, I, I like most of your comments. I, I was wondering if you could share with people how they could find you on social media, specifically uh, your favorite channels like Facebook. Well, uh, just go to Facebook and put in Ben Gay the third, Ben Gay, Roman numeral three. Same thing with LinkedIn. Or they can go to my website, www.bfg3. Com. B is in Ben, F is in Frank, G is in Dave, the numeral three dot com. Between those three sites, you'll learn more about me than you'd ever want to know. Well, we're going to uh, be going to break pretty soon. I, I just want to say that uh, the, the Facebook page, you just started last year, and it's already uh, got great engagement, and you're almost about to hit 1,000 people that are actually fans of yours, so congratulations on that. Well, thank you, sir. That was with help from you. My pleasure. So we're going to go to break right now, and we'll come back and pick it up with some of the famous people that you've had the pleasure to work with and also how they inspired you. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Umbrella Syndicate amplifies good causes, good people, and good messages. They offer a suite of services that help people and businesses gain better exposure. Through working with the Umbrella Syndicate, you gain the ability to reach an audience of 50,000 unique people a week. They have recently reached over 20,000 followers on Facebook. You can view their photography and how they use it as a strong promotional tool on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash The Umbrella Syndicate. Show them your support by liking their page. If you want to learn how to be a better leader, increase your level of business performance, and motivate your team and organization more effectively, listen for Performing at Your Best, Mindset Evolution with Luis Vicente Garcia. Luis Vicente and his guests will share their expertise and enthusiasm in helping you to succeed. It's combining that drive with business skills that will do just that. Tune in live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Amplify. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. We also would love to hear from you via email to info at umbrellasyndicate.com. Now, back to Amplify. All right, welcome back to this segment. We're so excited to have Ben Gabe III uh, on this whole hour program. And Ben was a little concerned. He, he said during the break that, uh, because some people might have missed the first segment that he was just requesting I read the read the uh, ten minute introduction again. Uh, so everyone that missed it the first, <laughs> <laughs> we got you. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so I understand that you not only invented the internet, but you also invented the one eight hundred number. Is that is that I, I just did Googled it, and you were the inventor of both those. Is that yeah, correct? Uh, well, Al, Al Gore actually invented the internet. Uh, I, I invented I invented how to timeshare an 800 number where everybody could get now I guess an 800 number is $5 a month or something but back when I started the National Communication Center in 1976 each line uh, cost you $10,000 in front every month plus overtime because it only paid for 240 hours of time for $10,000 and we had rather quickly 15 or 20 lines coming in. So, you know, times 10,000, the phone bill was rather interesting. Um, and uh, what we did was buy, I used the old mail order trick, you know, in mail order, it says uh, XYZ company, blah, 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 department number, so-and-so. Well, the department number tells them where you ran, uh, read the ad so they know where they should run the ad again. It, it, there is no department 523. So we did the same thing with operator numbers. Everybody dialed the same phone number. I still have it, 800-824-7888. Ask for operator number, whatever. And then when you ask for operator number, whatever, we flipped back in the early days, we flipped through a catalog, like a Sears parts thing, to page number, whatever you just said, and start reading the script. You know, this is operator so-and-so with so-and-so. I've been asked to take your name, address, phone number. So we were able to get people to have an 800 number in their ads without having to sell their children into slavery. 
and uh, it became a huge hit and started an entire industry. On the day we started the National Communication Center, 96% of all Americans did not know that an 800 number was free to call. So we had to create an industry and build it after we took off. I thought everybody, I knew that. I thought everybody else did. (laughs) Well, they didn't. So we had to explain what it was, how it worked, why they ought to work with us, et cetera. But it, it worked out well. So basically, you're a pretty smart whippersnapper. Is that what you're kind of saying about this 800 business? I'm not the smartest person you ever met, but I'm not the dumbest. Well, when, when your dad actually gave you that, uh, I guess, wisdom to ask for what you, they thought it was worth instead of what you could have the confidence to charge. What was his background? How did he uh, come up with that? I guess. Well, I came up in a in a family of salespeople. All of my aunts and uncles, all of them, owned a business of some sort. Some of them were partners with my father, uh, and so on. But they were all involved in business and selling. And to a person, we all have our ups and downs. But to a person, they were successful. So I grew up in that atmosphere. My other little benefit in life was setting my comfort zone, with credit to Jim Newman who created that term, comfort zone. Uh, I lived and we belonged to, I lived two blocks out of the front gate and we belonged to East Lake Country Club, which is where the championship is held every year, Bobby Jones' home course and so on. And everybody that's anybody in Atlanta, you know, the chairman of the board of Coca-Cola, blah, 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 they all belong there. And there's other fine courses in Atlanta, but East Lake was the king of them all. So I grew up around successful people. Any money I had in my pocket, I had to earn. But I grew up around people who were always saying, "Well, why don't you try this? Try this. You know, talk to your dad about this or whatever." And uh, so I was ready. You know, when the seed finally dropped on me to start my own serious business and make serious money. I had been, uh, the, the field in my mind had been plowed and fertilized and watered, and it was ready. Well, we just actually had the pleasure of going to uh, an organization called IES, and they had a symposium for, that was uh, titled uh, Client Acquisition, and the, the, they had six brilliant speakers. I don't know if you ever heard of uh, John Spence, but he was probably one of the, the better-known speakers, but they all, they all were phenomenal. And... There was a huge emphasis on prospecting, and since you were in the, uh, you've written twelve books and co-authored another dozen or so, uh, what kind of emphasis would you put on prospecting, and, and how do you go about that? Well, if you're not prospecting in some form or fashion, uh, you're not in business very long. You have to be constantly in uh, the multi-level marketing field, uh, Holiday Magic Cosmetics and its affiliate. We had five major companies spread out all over the world that I was running or helping to run with Bill Patrick, William Penn Patrick, another, another one of my mentors. Uh, and the whole concept was you had to constantly be talking to people. Now, this was before the Internet. Uh, we used to have a little jokes. The, the men would carry in their suit pockets. The ladies had it in their purse, a little compact mirror about the size of a, a playing card. And people would say, you know, am I qualified or who do I, how do I tell when somebody's qualified? And we'd take out the mirror, put it under the person's nose who just asked the question. And we said, we got vapor, you're in. <laughs> so we, you know, we were contacting everybody and anybody. And, and people would say to me, well, what if somebody couldn't make it? You know, well, that's sort of up to them as long as you treat them fairly, squarely, decently by the rules. But if somebody had qualified me, 
I never would have, would have joined the business. September 15, 1965 was a game changer for me when I answered the ad. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution went into the office, met another guy who'd answered the same ad. He laughed at my name. I laughed at his after I found out it was Zig Ziglar. And we started in business together on the same day. He was older. He'd been in other businesses and sold cookware and so on. But it was all based on talk to everybody and anybody. And I'll tell you something. If the Internet had been around when I was running Holiday Magic, you would now be calling me King Ben. Uh, we would uh, we would have taken over the world a long, long time ago because we were going person to person, door to door, one at a time, without computers. And if you got in the business, you had to go to the bank and, and get a cashier's check to to get in the business, which gave you a, another 24 hours to think about it, maybe change your mind, and so on. It was just I didn't know it was a nightmare because that's what everybody was doing. But today, if you started out with a company like that, run that way, you wouldn't get out of your own neighborhood. Today, with all of the, uh, for lack of a better word, electronic ways to prospect and promote yourself and so on, I, I, it's just a godsend for the people coming up in the business today. I, I don't want to sound like an old geezer, but you know, it used to be when I was a young salesman traveling in the southeastern United States, I would get in my car and drive 25 miles to see if somebody was there. They did one telephone calls, believe it or not, were expensive. So you didn't casually make long-distance calls. B, they didn't have cell phones on. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have whatever. And it was tough to get through the lady on the phone if she answered the phone as his gatekeeper and so on. So it was just easier to go see him. And I've taken many, many trips off into the hinterlands only to discover he didn't see salespeople on Wednesday or whatever. And the whole day was shot. Today, if some sales presentation or opportunity goes astray, I hit the delete button or the disconnect button, and I'm talking to somebody else in 15 or 20 seconds. I, I can't believe how easy it is for people, and yet the same percentage of people are still not, I don't want to say failing, because they put up a little money and they got the product to either eat or drink or whatever, and so they didn't lose anything. But the people who are not making it, I don't understand how that's possible. You can sit in your bathrobe and make it today. But recruiting and prospecting and getting your name out there is a constant. It's, it's among my number one activities every day. No matter what else is going on, I do some of that, and usually first. Well, we were at that uh, IES event because of Wexler Consulting Group, and, I, and if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't actually have a couple of these questions. So the, the question I have for you is, if you were to identify one of your favorite salespeople that you admire or inspired by that you learn from, and then perhaps pick a modern day uh, salesperson that you respect and think is one of the best, what, why would you pick those two people and would it, what would be the distinguishing aspects in the last one is could that first person you pick from back in the day, would they survive in the current sales technology uh, with just the habits that they, they cultivated? Uh, because of the environment I was in, I feel bad about picking one, but I will because he was one of my favorites. He was a gentle, kind man. His name was Fred Herman. He was from Cedartown, Georgia, and he's famous for a, a recording. I think Nightingale Kona still sells it called Kiss, Keep It Simple Salesman. And uh, he was just like a big teddy bear. He floated into a room and was kind with everybody and so on. But he was a killer salesperson. I mean, a killer. 
he'd have you buying from him before you knew he'd started. He had a lot of the characteristics of my partner, James H. Rucker, Jr., Jimmy Rucker, the greatest salesman who ever lived. They reminded me of each other. I'll tell you a quick Fred Herman story. He, he never said a bad word about anybody. I never heard him cuss, nothing. And we're sitting around the table one day, probably one of those legendary tables now. You know, Earl might have been there, Doug Edwards might have been there, whatever. There were six or seven, seven of us sitting around having just done or about to do a seminar. And somebody brought up the subject of what's the worst sales experience you ever had. And Fred leaned forward. I've never seen him do that before. <laughs> he was sort of a laid-back guy. Leaned forward, started getting red in the face. He said, there was a salesman who called on me in the 50s in Cedartown, Georgia. And if I ever saw him again, I would. and I had a baseball bat handy, I would beat him within an inch of his life. And I said, my God, Fred. And I was also thinking while he was saying that, I didn't know you had millions to lose. Because he said the guy cost him millions of dollars. And I said, tell us the story, Fred. He said he was selling a new product called a mutual fund. And he wasn't good enough to close me. And he left my office without me buying. And he cost me millions of dollars. Wow. And, yeah, it's a great twist on on a a story uh, like that, but he, I remember sitting there I, in the early days, I took lots and lots and lots of notes because I didn't know anything, uh, but that one sticks with me like it was yesterday because he taught me that if you have a quality product that's competitively priced and you're talking to qualified people, you have a duty to sell it to them or at least offer it to them where they can make an intelligent, informed decision. That guy cost Fred maybe millions of dollars, literally, because he wasn't good enough to close him on a simple concept called mutual funds because it was new and Fred didn't know about it. He wasn't reading about it in the paper every day like you are today. Today, I, again, that's, I work with the top people in selling, so I, I, I would be hard-pressed. But let me give you an example of one who, uh, his name is Michael McNerney. Uh, he sells annuities and insurance and so on. He's a finance guy, in other words. He came to my public speaking seminar. I do one about one a year. I'm about to do another one right after the first of the year in San Francisco. He came to the public speaking seminar. He was making $100,000 a year. This is four or five years ago. He was making $100,000 a year. I'm sort of fat and happy with that. would like to have made more, but he didn't know how. And I taught him in the public speaking seminar how to do group presentations. I was spoiled by Holiday Magic. I used to I talked to as many as 15,000 people at once with the presentation I would have given to one person. So I, I grew rather spoiled. Why should I tell one person when I can tell 500 or 5,000 or 15,000 or what have you? We, we gave Michael the power of public speaking and personal persuasion from the front of the room, and his income jumped almost immediately from $100,000 a year to a million dollars a year. Now, yes, for great salespeople, that makes him a great salesperson. He's not running some big organization. He's got, a, I think, a personal assistant, but basically that's him by himself talking to people. And he prospects relentlessly, uses one of those services that helps fill the room for him, uh, he's practiced and honed his public presentation skills. He's a heck of a speaker now. And he was always good across the table one at a time, but now he closes 40 or 50 people at a time per night for a significant investment. And I could go on, you know, Hugh Harris, the great 
home improvement guy out of Atlanta and, and on down the line. They're just, uh, I, I have worked directly and indirectly with tens of thousands of great salespeople. They're everywhere, and most of them you've never heard of because they're so busy selling, they don't have time to run around yelling their own name. And Fred, what, what book did he write? Fred didn't write a book, to my knowledge. I never saw one. He had a recording, Keep It Simple Salesman, Kid. Okay. And uh, he recorded it and then sold the rights to the Nightingale Conant Corporation. My claim to fame, by the way, I had a big hand in that. I sat at the end of the runway. He had one of those, you know, Miss America-type runways, and he was walking up and down doing the thing. And I sat at the very end with a boom microphone so that when he came to my end of the stage, I was holding the microphone he was talking into. Now, you won't be able to tell that while you're listening, but that's a big, uh, that was a big help to Fred <laughs> versus having, no, I, it's sort of like me, for the first 40, 50 times I worked with Zig, I had to carry, I didn't have to, but I wanted to learn from him. I had to carry that stupid pump around. It must have weighed 25, 30 pounds, you know, when you pump the water and say you got to keep pumping and so on. One day we were walking into a meeting somewhere and uh, Zig said, did you get the pump? And I said, yeah, I'm going to get the pump. For the last time, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing more of the seminar now than you're doing, so you're going to have to carry your own pump or find a new gopher. But, uh, hold it from holding microphones for Fred Herman to carrying the pump, the zig, I've, I've earned my stuff in the early days. Ben, can we tell us a little bit about of the attitude coach? That was your nickname? I'm very sorry. You, you're echoing in my ear, uh, Gisela. Can you hear me again? Can you hear me now? Can you I hear can me? hear you, but you're echoing. Yeah. The Attitude Coach from the Apollo 15. Oh, okay. Uh, the uh, a holiday magic distributor named uh, Jeannie. I'll leave her last name out because I don't have permission to, <laughs> to say how I got in with NASA. But Jeannie was a, uh, was a holiday magic distributor. Uh, like an Avon lady, plus she built an organization. Her husband worked for NASA. He was the launch test supervisor of the manned space program. So as a courtesy to me, they invited me down for the launch of Apollo 14, uh, Shepard's flight. And I sat in the VIP stands with the Supreme Court, one row behind me, the entire Supreme Court, and in front of me an old slave, a gentleman who was born a slave, brought to America, chained in the hold of a sailing ship, uh, and sold on the do docks of Charleston, South Carolina. And we sat in the VIP stands to watch Apollo 14 take off. It was quite a stretch in, in my mind to be looking over the head of a slave and watching a rocket go to the moon. But the night before 14 took off, we had a big dinner. And oddly enough, in my honor, had, I was there to honor them. And we had the launch and ground crews of most of Apollo 15, 16, 17 there. Jim Earl was the commander of Apollo 15. And they gathered around me and at the end of the dinner and, you know, tell us about this and tell us about this. I guess Jim and Jeannie had given me a big buildup. So I gave what little wisdom I had and so on. And Jim Irwin said, would you mind serving? They were having some real problems at the Cape at the time uh, with uh, attitude problems because they were laying off people at high speed. Apollo was coming to an end. Um, the contractors, the private contractors were getting raises. Apollo, was being, Apollo people were being laid off. And so it was uh, a difficult time uh, for them. And hey, it's, it's interesting you I, said time, Ben. 
questions. Interesting you said time. I'm getting cued that we have to go to a break right now. So hold that thought. We're going to come back to third segment, and you can pick up that story. Thanks. All right. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Umbrella Syndicate amplifies good causes, good people, and good messages. They offer a suite of services that help people and businesses gain better exposure. Through working with the Umbrella Syndicate, you gain the ability to reach an audience of 50,000 unique people a week. They have recently reached over 20,000 followers on Facebook. You can view their photography and how they use it as a strong promotional tool on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash the Umbrella Syndicate. Show them your support by liking their page. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Amplify. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. We also would love to hear from you via email to info at UmbrellaSyndicate.com. Now, back to Amplify. All right. We are back for the third and final segment. And Ben, you were just saying the word time, and I had to cut you off. So can you uh, pick up where you left off there? Sure. We're just wrapping up on the Apollo uh, involvement. Uh, the... At this backyard barbecue, I noticed a couple of things. I made two significant contributions, I think, to the NASA and a lot of personal friendships and one-on-one coaching. One was I noticed that the flight crews entered like movie stars and had to introduce themselves to the ground crews. The ground crews the people who assembled the rocket and send it up. I thought that was sort of odd while Alan Shepard was on the public speaking system begging them to put the Apollo 14 together right because it had been a horribly flawed endeavor up until that point. So I suggested that they do on a programmed basis backyard barbecues where the astronauts meet the people who put them up and put the ship together and work with them and so on so that you're not sending up an astronaut, you're sending up Uncle Jim and if Uncle Jim is killed during the launch, you're going to have a tough time explaining it to your kids when you get home because they love Uncle Jim. That program goes on to this day. And uh, the other one was since when I was down there, there were 125 astronauts that had earned flight status rank, but most of them never flew retired without ever flying. I said, why don't you take – I went and met with the heads of NASA at the time, Dr. Miles Ross and Dr. Davis. I said, why don't you take these guys who aren't really doing anything except, you know, patting their foot, getting ready for their supposed launch, and send them out to the schools telling people 
all the th- and, and organizations telling people all the good that's come out of NASA. If can God forbid you have a heart attack this afternoon, NASA will save you because everything they do to you in the ambulance before you get to the hospital will come directly out of the space program. They'll be treating you before you get there, and digital watches and so on. They had a catalog. Look like the New York phone book of all the things NASA had done. I said, nobody knows this, but whoever put the catalog together. So backyard barbecues and getting to go talk to the people about the good NASA was doing were my two major contributions. And Jim Irwin, unfortunately, died way too young. He was a fine family man, a lot of kids, good Christian, uh, just a wonderful human being. He died of a heart attack. Well, that's that's sad. I was. I know that you have a, a lot of great stories, and uh, there's just not enough time to tell them all. So we're probably going to have to have you back uh, consecutive every single week for the rest of the year, if that's okay with you. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, some of my favorites. Napoleon Hill. Uh, a lot of people know the Think and Grow Rich book, and I think it's one of the top business books and sales books of all time. Uh, what was one of the favorite stories or uh, things you learned from Napoleon? Dr. Hill had an amazing ability to dissect things and make them real simple. He was hired and given to me as a birthday gift by William Penn Patrick on August 22nd. I forget the year. It was about three years before Dr. Hill died. And uh, he said, Bill said to me, I know that there are things you would like to talk to somebody about, but you can't come down the hall and tell me you're afraid, so I've, I've hired a guy that you can tell anything to. And I won't go into a long story, but I tested that system several times, and nothing I ever told Dr. Hill went any farther than him. uh, But he had an amazing ability to listen to a complicated story or problem and then just cut right through it. Cutting right through it reminds me one time I was contemplating firing the guy, and that would have made him my enemy and, you know, a long, complicated thing. And uh, Dr. Hill was sitting having lunch at a restaurant right near our office, and Dr. Hill leaned back, and he said, Ben, why would you cut the knot in half and ruin the rope when you can easily untangle it? (laughs) And I probably, probably took a few questions for me to fully grasp that, but the end result was I didn't fire the guy. He went on to great success and is a dear friend of mine today. And that wouldn't be possible without Dr. Hill just being able to simplify things, cut through all the nonsense and simplify things. And how about Ogmandino? Ogmandino was, I just found him fascinating. As you know, he was, uh, uh, as he said, I'm not being disrespectful, he was a drunk, uh, a raging alcoholic who one day, I forget exactly where it was or how the story goes, but he woke up on a park bench somewhere, stood up, shook it off, and went and changed his life. He'd finally had enough. He was one of the first people that told me that when you have somebody like that, they have to hit rock bottom, whatever their own rock bottom is. And since they hit it and hit it hard enough and have any innate talent, they will rise up and do great things. And he, that's what he did when he got up off that park bench one day. He went from a raging alcoholic to a, a leader in the human potential movement. Well, the book, The Greatest Salesman in the World, is, is one of my favorites. So, uh, and since you actually personally knew him, it, it actually blows me away that I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall to hear all the stories of, and the conversations you had with him. What, what was the time that you were challenged, and uh, maybe not necessarily rock bottom, but were so challenged that you didn't know what you were going to do next, and then what was the solution? Uh, the, uh, when I turned, Floyd said the three worst things that can happen to a man are turning 30, 
having his father die and getting fired. And that may be an older age now. Maybe it's 40 when your father dies. But anyway, when I turned 30, within months, my father died, um, I got, and I got fired. Uh, and I, and I turned 30. I got fired. We had a business dispute we couldn't resolve. I would, I call it firing. I got, I left Holiday Magic having been the superstar in the organization for about five years. <clears throat> and I was really, sort of at my wits end. I had plenty of money. They were paying me $16,000 a month in 1970 dollars to stay home. That's like $160,000 a month now just to sit down and be quiet and don't start a rival company. So it wasn't like I was suffering, but it was a blow to the ego from going from a godlike creature to an unemployed uh, person in uh, Marin County. And that's when, sitting in my office, up on the top of my house, I looked across the, the San Francisco Bay, the part of it right beneath my window, and I saw a smokestack sticking up, and I realized that was the smokestack of San Quentin State Prison. The prison itself was hidden from me by a hillside, but the smokestack stuck up. And I thought to myself, probably took 30 minutes, which we don't have now, but I thought to myself, you know, I bet I could do something over there. So I went over, called on the warden, made a proposal to him a few weeks later. He said, all right, we're in. I'll get it started. Handed me a stack of papers about two feet high, and he said, fill these out. It's going to take a little while to get it approved. I said, what's all this? He said, well, that's what it takes to get something like this approved. I said, what if I did it for free? He said, well, we can start this afternoon. <laughs> so that afternoon, I was standing in front of two or 300 inmates uh, in the bowels of San Quentin State Prison and giving the first talk of a new company or organization called People Builders. And I spent the next five, only 12 hours a day officially. It's an all-night seminar from six uh, Friday evening to 6 o'clock Saturday morning. But I spent the next five years and a lot of other time doing that. Where I met, we haven't got time to talk about it now, but if we do this again, uh, ask me about Charlie Manson. Uh, and a lot of people far worse than Charlie, but he's the most—he's the best known and most interesting. Uh, yes, uh, that, that's a nice tease for us to bring you back, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have some other people I want to ask you about, but I, I just want to dart over to a segue of uh, what would you say is maybe between one and three things that most people are missing to close a sale? Since you wrote a book called The Closers and. Uh, that book is available on Amazon, and you can, you can share where uh, you can get any of the books that you've you've written. But what are some of the things that are missing that uh, prevent a lot of people from being abundant as a closer or as a salesperson? They uh, try and cut corners. They don't take the time to find a, qual- a quality product that's competitively priced, sell it to qualified people, while becoming a person of class, quality, and substance. Now, to simplify all that, just for the shortness of time, they don't care about their product or their customers enough. They're just in it for them. You've got to care about your product or service. You've got to care about the people you're offering it to. And you've got to do it in an honest, completely honest way. I coined a phrase years ago, if honesty didn't exist, somebody should invent it as the best way of getting rich. Now, let's assume they get that out of the way rather quickly. Then when they get in front of a prospect, they don't listen whether it's over the Internet and you're typing or, or you're face-to-face, they don't listen. People will tell you exactly what they want to buy and the conditions under which they want to buy it. And then they don't learn their skill. Closing is, is tagged 
you know, and I'm famous for the closers and master closer and so on, but uh, that's really just the very tip of the iceberg at the end. The close starts when you get up in the morning, get dressed and go to work and, and the attitude you carry with you, but they don't learn selling skills. There are steps that a prospect has to go through psychologically, hopefully with a guide, a professional salesperson guide who takes them through the steps. Not unlike when you lose somebody and they die, you have to go through the five steps of grieving. Uh, Off the top of my head, I don't remember what the five steps are, but in selling, it's a similar thing. There are steps they must go through to make a positive decision and acquire your product or service. If you don't know what they are and don't know how to guide them through it, You'll just be an average run-of-the-mill uh, order taker the rest of your life. Where with a skill set, the gentleman we were talking about earlier, Michael McNerney, went from $100,000 to a million dollars a year by learning how to present his product. The product didn't change. Same product, same interest rate, same and everything is the same. The only thing that changed was Michael McNerney. And. Uh, you never mentioned really Zig Ziglar is one of your top, but when you described who, uh, what someone has to have in order to be a top salesperson or to get past all the things that hold back salespeople, I immediately think of Zig because he, he was really coined as the person who was like a closer. He had so many books on selling and the techniques. Would you, would you consider him one of the best? Yeah, especially from the front of the room. Uh, Zig was, people always ask me, can you train a salesperson or are they born that way? And I said, both. I had to be trained. I had a reasonably nice personality and I came from a nice family so I could speak proper English when I chose to and so on. But Zig, I'm confident, came out of his mother's womb laughing and clapping his hands and saying, let me tell you folks, uh, he was a natural and he was 16, 17 years older than I was. So when I met him, uh, carrying his pump around was probably not a bad idea. It's about all I was qualified to do. But within six months to a year, I was out selling him. I've won every contest we ever went up against each other head-to-head. Uh, so Zig was, was a natural who with skills got even better. I was an untrained mess who with skills and hard work was able to catch up. I think one of the reasons I caught Zig was life had been reasonably easy for him. He was such a personality guy and everybody loved him and so on that he didn't make, you know, if if he was making 15 sales a day and doing the top volume he was doing, then all I had to do was make 25 sales a day and I'd beat him. Hmm. And uh, that, was, that was the approach I took. I thought, oh, I'll never be the personality Zig is. And then in time discovered I should never try to be somebody else, but I can outwork anybody. Well, since we have about a minute or two left, I'd love to hear some of your uh, favorite quotes and uh, maybe a a book or two that you highly recommend to our audience. Uh, Favorite quote, probably of all time, again, there's a hundred I could probably pull out of a file somewhere or or tell you, but the one that really turned me around was I read a quote by Robert Ed Danford, excuse me. He was the head of Ralston Purina at the time, and why he did the quote or what speech was given, I don't know. But he said, the difference between successful people and unsuccessful people is that successful people do what unsuccessful people aren't willing to do because successful people are after successful results while unsuccessful people are after pleasing methods. And I remember when I read it in a book, my head sort of spun around and I thought, yeah, that's it. 
<laughs> I've been trying to avoid hard work and this and that because I was after pleasing methods. I should be after pleasing results. Books I've, I've acquired and given away. Someone who keeps track of such things because of our charitable donations. Over 5,000 books in the last 55 years. Uh, I'm probably down to about a thousand now and I'm giving those away because I finally figured out that I've read them maybe once or twice, the really good ones. They're sitting on a shelf like a trophy. They'd be better off in the hands of somebody to get something for, you know, get something out of them. So I'm aggressively giving away materials all the time. Thinking Grow Rich would certainly be right up there at the top at the risk of sounding sanctimonious. There's all sorts of great stuff in the Bible that doesn't come as a shock to most people, I'm sure. But life quotes, you know, Jim Rohn taught out of the Bible frequently. These things about the harvester and the sowing the seeds and all that comes right out of the Bible. You sold me. You're coming back to the show. You have too much content for one hour. So I wanted to just uh, challenge you to send a lot of those books to the Umbrella Syndicate because we would actually like to do a photo shoot so that people that see the books that you recommend would uh, be seen by tens of thousands of people and we could actually uh, cause a really good educational viral campaign. So, Ben, you are amazing. I'm so glad that we at least got uh, an hour to uh, download your brain a little bit and we're going to have you back for a future show. I can't wait to see you. Um, Again, just give the the website and we'll sign off. www.bfg3 the numeral three dot com. Okay, and you can also find him on Facebook at Ben Gay the Third. Ben, you are an extraordinary person. I'm lucky to know you. Have a great night. Thank you. You've been amplified, Ben. You've been amplified. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Amplified. Be sure to join Ken Roshan and Gisela Gonzalez again next Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, go get your message heard.